like to start off our portion of the show by giving me a taste of a little something we call Rock and Roll! Rock and Roll! Rock and Roll! Rock and Roll! Rock and roll to me. All right. Welcome to the It's Only Rock and Roll podcast. I'm your host, Don DiMuccio, and I've had restraining orders taken out on me by two members of REO Speedwagon, one Dixie Chick, and the entire cast and crew of Punky Brewster. And if you're listening, Soleil, call me. Today on the show, we have a true rock and roll insider who, while still only in her 20s, hopped a plane to swinging 60s London and in short order found herself working for the Beatles at their newly formed Apple Records, doing everything from booking studio time for their artists to singing backing vocals on Hey Jude. She later worked as personal assistant to the Rolling Stones. And by the way, that's her on the bottom left on the back cover of Exile on Main Street. And later, she became one of Rock's first female tour managers, organizing that chaos that accompanies life on the road, working for Santana, Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young, and Bob Dylan. And if all that wasn't enough, what's cooler than being immortalized in song by none other than George Harrison on his 1973 single, Miss Odell? When 
it comes to some of the biggest names in music during the 60s and 70s, few insiders had the level of access like our guest today. Her rock and roll resume includes working for the Beatles at their then newly formed multimedia company Apple Core Limited, personal assistant to the Rolling Stones during their 72 U.S. tour for Exile on Main Street, as well as tour manager for Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young, Queen, and Bob Dylan during the infamous Rolling Thunder Review. This witness to rock history also holds a distinction of being the inspiration for more than a few songs, perhaps most famously mentioned by name as the title of George Harrison's B-side, Miss Odell. Please welcome to the It's Only Rock and Roll podcast, author of Miss Odell, Hard Days and Long Nights with the Beatles, the Stones, Bob Dylan and Eric Clapton, Chris Odell. Hello, Chris. <laughs> Hello, how are you? Great. If I had actually gone through your entire resume, we wouldn't have time for the interview. I was going to say just doing my subtitle. Yeah. My book takes your breath away. <laughs> it's a great book, by the way. Thank you. It's still available on Amazon. People should check it out. It is, yes. We'll Amazingly. A, we'll have it in the show notes. Well, thank you for doing this again. And I uh, understand not too long ago, you were a guest speaker at this year's Beetlefest. Yes, that was great. I have to say, I did it once before, but this time it was so much fun. <laughs> I really enjoyed it. It's just fun being around and listening to all these people who, after all this time, are still devoted, old and young. Yep, every year it's like a different generation is discovering them. Right, exactly. I will definitely be in Chicago. <laughs> when is that happening? Is it in August? Um, it's August. August, that's great. My God, when you start working for Apple and being around them, they were already well established at that point. But did you ever think years later that there'd still be so much interest in what no, was going on? Uh -uh. Not at all. You know, I guess we just didn't think that far ahead, number one. But it did seem, I knew they would always be important to our generation. But what's interesting is how it's crossed into so many other generations now, mm -hmm. including my own son. How old is he? He's 36. Yeah. Before we delve into the, the past and the specifics, I was wondering what you thought of Peter Jackson's film, Get Back in comparison to the way Michael Lindsay Hogg had portrayed them. For the original, let it be. Well, the truth for me lies somewhere in the middle of those two. I thought Peter Jackson's was absolutely amazing. I like Michael's also, I mean, at the time. And be, having been around at that time, I think Peter Jackson took some of the bits of film that really showed a more upside of what was going on. And I think that's a great memory to have. So mm. I've stated since watching it, it is long. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I've stated that the truth lied somewhere in the middle of the two two different videos. But it's how great to be able to see the two films. It mm -hmm. certainly looks a lot cleaner 50 years later, which is amazing. I think Paul said once things are supposed to get old and dusty and their footage and their music gets shinier and clean as every you know, decade goes by. Exactly. You know, Don, it's like I was watching it for the three nights and I kept thinking, I feel like this was yesterday right. because it was so clean. It was like watching something on your phone from like two days ago that you participated in, <laughs> except I aged really quickly. <laughs> <laughs> And the advances in the sound is really cool that he was able to extract audio that otherwise would have been lost in the noise of the original soundtrack. Right. Now you actually saw them as a kid, right? In 66? Well, I wasn't a kid at that point. I was 19. That's a kid. Was that a kid? That's a kid. <laughs> I was in Los Angeles, and I was just talking to my sister about it the other day. I bought a ticket for her and brought her to L.A., and we went to see them. I think it was Chevis Ravine. Is that what that... 
baseball stadium was called, I think. So we did see them and we were talking about what it was like. And Vicky, you know, my sister said, oh my God, all the girls around us were just like freaking out and trying to guess whether how they would arrive in a helicopter. I don't remember any of that. I do remember seeing these little four moving things moving across the field into a van or coming out of a van, but that's and and you couldn't hear. <laughs> it was kind of it was kind of a forgettable moment actually. Could you figure out what song was being played or was it just so much noise? It was so much noise and I was way up in the, you know, way up in the bleachers. So it made it even harder. But if you think about it, you know, they were using small amps and, and they may have been connected to the stadium speakers. I don't know for that one or not, but there was just so much screaming and yelling and so much excitement. Actually, the whole event was more about the excitement mm. of having being that close to them than it was about hearing them or even seeing them in some cases. Which is the antithesis of what a band really wants. Well, I guess that's probably why they got tired of it. Exactly right. Yeah. Well, I guess the singular question is, how does a kid from Oklahoma go from being a fan and working for Apple Records at the height of their career? I mean, you started before they were even at Savile Row, right? Was it Wigmore Street? Right. They were still in Wigmore Street. Apple hadn't been around that long. Um, you know, it's almost like I feel like I didn't do anything. I had nothing to do with it. It was like, that was my journey. <laughs> right. I was on it and I didn't have a choice. But, you know, I went to LA, lived in Tucson. My parents moved a lot. Moved to um, Tucson. I went to LA when I got finished with high school. And, you know, by stroke of luck, I got a job in the record business, which was interesting because I love music. I was passionate about it. So it was synchronicity that I would end up in a record company and right. then working in another area of that. And through that, I met Derek Taylor in Los Angeles. What are the chances? I know. You know, it's pretty amazing. It, when I look back today, I, it, it amazes me, to be honest. And Derek just said, come to London. And I, I didn't. <laughs> I thought about it for a long time. I lived with an actress called Terry Gar, who was at that time kind of uh, trying to get a career for herself. The and Terry Gar? Really? Yeah. The actress, oh, yes. my goodness. My dear Terry. And she talked me into it. I mean, she said, you have to do this. I don't know if I would have. So I did. So I went to London. And, of course, it took me a while to actually get a job. But I was welcomed right. because Derek brought me in. And even before that, there's an incident where you weren't planning on going out one night. And I don't know if you had been, uh, some guy was late or a date or something. And you got a oh. phone call. That means that. Had you not made that decision to go out, your entire life's journey would have been different. Oh, right. Because he said, um, oh, oh, yeah, I was really angry at him <laughs> for being late. <laughs> and he said, oh, meet me at the La Brea Inn. There's someone you've got to meet. He worked for the Beatles. And I'm like, yeah, right, sure. Yeah, and yeah this is Hollywood. <laughs> Everybody worked for somebody. But that's not what got me out. What got me out is I wanted to get out, I think, more than anything. So, yeah, that was a chance meeting for sure. And a very important one in my life. Derek was a, a really important person in my life. Would you say he was more like a father figure? 
I, I think he was like a mentor in a way. Okay. And, and he was not just that for me. He was that for many people. He kind of brought in. It's almost like he picked who he wanted around. <laughs> Richard DeLello was another one of those people that he picked. Now, what did he do for the Beatles? Richard worked in the press office. He was called the house hippie. I think that's what yeah, Derek sure. called him. <laughs> and he wrote really the first book that came out from someone who worked within the company, The Longest Cocktail. Right. Yeah. Now, when you first got there, there were secretaries there who had been part of the old guard, who had worked mm-hmm. with Brian and all that. You came in with a certain amount of, you know, you didn't know what the politics were necessarily. And he asked Paul a question, which kind of ruffled the feathers of some of the people working there. Yeah, well, I was naive, but I was also a true American. You just figured, oh, it's there, why not ask? Right. <laughs> so I just said to Paul, can I come to the studio? They were starting the White Album. It seemed perfectly natural to me that since I knew him, I mean, from the office, because he was there every day, it just seemed natural. It didn't seem like a big deal. (laughs) And of course he said yes. He would have said yes anyway. But he then turned me over to Mal Evans, the gatekeeper, and Mal said yes. But when I actually got to the studio, Mal's yes wasn't really a yes. It wasn't, I'll just sit and talk to you in the reception area if mm. you're not going into the studio. Um, and thank God I met John Lennon's friend, Pete Shotton, who was there. And Pete said, let's go in the studio. So we did and ended up clapping on one of the tracks. Do you remember what it was? Um, not really. Some people have suggested it was Revolution Number 9, and I can't remember. I just remember we were uh, Are you kidding? How could I remember? I, I was <laughs> like standing around a microphone with the Beatles. <laughs> was Yoko there at that time? Yoko was there. What were your impressions of her? Um, I have a different impression of her today than I did back then. I think we all had the impression that she was, you know, taking John away or exposing him to things that were, I don't know, were, were, were causing problems. And she was very, um, you know, I, I at one time tried to talk to her when we were sitting at a table together at the opening of the Apple Boutique on King's Road. And it was the first time they'd been publicly uh, in front of the media. And I remember reaching over to her and saying, everything will be fine. You're okay. You're doing great. Mm. And she turned around and looked at me, you know, as though I was an alien. (laughs) It was, there was no connection whatsoever. So I, and I'd been, I was around her more than a few times. Um, and, and there really, I mean, she was nice, but there was no connection. Right. Put it, that's the best way to put it. No connection. How was John to deal with? Actually, John was great. Yeah. I mean, even during those days at Apple, he was easy to talk to. You know, he was available. You could walk into their office, the door was open. Was that the atmosphere at Apple? Yeah, Yeah. it really was. I mean, we weren't that big. The Wigmore Streets was on one floor of a building, an office building. And the Savile Row building, really, there were like two main offices per floor. There were four floors. And and so there weren't that many people working there. I don't even know how many there were. I suppose I should count it out sometime. But unless there were people there who weren't part of the the group, like visitors or something, it was pretty much anything goes. I heard you make the analogy that working there was kind of like what it must be today at one of those Silicon Valley companies. 
Yeah, it was like that because it was what was happening. It was the hub of everything wonderful in the world. <laughs> and everybody knew it. And people, you know, I, I think I mentioned Lauren Bacall and Dwayne Eddio is looking at something I had said those two, but there were so many more people who came through Apple just because they wanted to see it. Because if you're in London, that was one of the places to at least go look at. Sure. And how did you come to sing on Hey Jude? Well, I was booking Trident Studios for all the Apple artists, and I didn't book EMI for the Beatles, but they were starting to use Trident uh, more and more. Right. I would just think, oh, okay, they're recording. I'm going to go over it. didn't matter who it was, James Taylor, you know, whoever it was. I would just go by and, and see what was going on. And I was sitting in the control room, and Paul came up and was talking to George Martin. And then when it, as he was leaving, he said, Chris, come, we need you. We need you. And yeah, I thought, okay. And then when I got downstairs, <clears throat> it was myself, and I can't remember at that time, everyone that was there, but it was certainly members of the orchestra that had stayed around. And we just stood around these microphones singing. Paul told us what to sing. And at first, I was so, I, I didn't want to make a mistake, you know. I didn't want the, someone to go, oh, what's that weird sound? <laughs> <laughs> Someone's flat. Yeah, so I thought, so I kind of mouthed it for the first round. And then we just kept doing it over and over and over again. And it became fun. Because Paul was kind of leading us, and um, you know, it actually everybody was smiling. It was a lovely chorus to be singing on. And the interesting thing is, I just realized a lot of people think that the video that was made later, when it came out, was when it was recorded. No. It isn't true. So the people in that video weren't recording the song. No, you know, it was such an important song for them because that was the launch of Apple. That's the first single. Well, I didn't even remember that. Yeah. But I do remember that in the days after that, there were posters all over town saying, Hey, Jude. <laughs> and um, But you never knew where things were going then, did you? But like you said earlier, you know, when you're in the middle of it, it's just happening. It's just life. Yeah, and I was 21 years old. <laughs> Again, a kid. I, exactly. All of us were kids. I mean, when you look at what 21-year-olds do today or don't do it today, can't do it today. I mean, you know, it seemed like everybody was a lot more mature back then. Well, we thought we were. See? I know that. Yeah. Yeah. But, I mean, for, for one thing, it was really not that usual for a young American girl to be living in Europe. Right. You know, to have taken, I mean, that was a major deal, to buy a ticket to London, unless you were with your family on vacation, <laughs> and they were all from Texas. <laughs> <laughs> but, but let me ask you, what did your family think of this? Were they supportive? I think they didn't quite get it in a way. I mean, when I called them and said, I'm going to move to London, I'm going to go to work for the Beatles, they were helpful. My dad sold my life insurance policy. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry about that today. <laughs> and um, my mom, you know, took over my car and, you know, they took me to the airport in Tucson when I, when I left. And I don't know what they were feeling. I think it was kind of, in some ways, they were proud. But the other part is it was just so far removed from what our experience in life as a family had been. Right. This may be a silly thing, but do you have much of the Apple memorabilia? Did you take any stuff with you? No, it's interesting. I have memorabilia. 
And I had quite more, and I had two trunk loads of it, footlockers, mm. and one of them got lost in Germany oh. when I was living there. Um, but, you know, that's not something that I thought about doing. It's what? like I don't take pictures either. I keep them, in, they're in my head. Right. I'm right. not a big photograph taker, so I just took the memories. It would be odd if you had been kind of like pilfering things around the office. You're not there for that. But it's just these things show up at auction, and like you can buy a house with the value of a matchbook. It's incredible. <laughs> oh. I wish I had a matchbook. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> I kept a couple things. There was one that I wish I had, and, I, and I've lost it, which was, I think I wrote a memo or something to John and Yoko and said, my friend just called me from New York, and there's going to be a concert in Woodstock, New York. And they wondered if you were interested in playing. And John wrote me back and said, no, but I would love to go. <laughs> wow. And I had that in a memo, and I have no clue where it went. That way, I wish I had that. What a historic piece that would be. Yeah. That's beautiful. I don't yeah. want to make this all about the Beatles, because your career is certainly more vast than that. And again, this is an odd question. I'm not looking for a specific thing, but so much has been written about them. Is there anything that you witness that the general public doesn't know? Something that didn't get out that would surprise I, people? No, I don't know that I witnessed anything that would surprise people. What I witnessed, and I've thought about this a lot lately, after the Beatle Fest, I realized, you know, I don't know what these people who have idolized them since they were kids, throughout their whole life, I don't know how they feel about it. I don't, and I, that's not my experience. My experience was I adored them, and then I met them. And that changed things. So my memories of them are so much more personalized. But when I think about it, I just think they were really nice people. You know, that was yeah. the, the main thing is they were just normal, nice people. Were they affected by the fame? Absolutely. Did they have fortunes? No. <laughs> but, um, but you know, they were, for my interactions with them, they were really down to earth. And occasionally, you'd have to remember that they were who they were. Did Alan Klein kind of put the kibosh on you working there? Was that pretty much what did it? Well, he tried. But I was say when I, cause I left to go to LA to live with Leon Russell. Um, uh, it didn't last very long. <laughs> and when I came back, I pretty much was told by a secretary, Alan doesn't want to hire you back because his goal was to get rid of all of us who had been around. So Neil Aspinall saved me and hired me to work with him on a film that later became The Long and Winding Road. And then George called me about a week or two after I had started working with Neil and asked me if I wanted to come to Friar Park. So I kind of feel like they removed me <laughs> from all of that that was going on. What was life at Friar Park like? Uh, it was it was very interesting. Every day was just, first of all, it was, one had to settle in there. It was a huge place, 120 rooms and no furniture, no heating. And it was the middle of the winter. <laughs> and then you're living in a beetle home. There were only four of us living there, though. George, Patty, Terry, Doran, and myself. That's so, a lot of house for a few people. That is a lot of house. Patty and I used to go around trying to count all the rooms, and we'd start talking to forget the number. <laughs> <laughs> and so we'd have to start over again. And and also, she had to get used to me being there. I mean, he kind of just brought me home. <laughs> So she and I had to develop our relationship because I didn't know, I'd met her a few times, but I didn't really know her. Once that was firm, then it was pretty easy. She and I just kind of worked together and Terry and George did their thing. 
I like that story when you first got there and you're looking at all the buildings. And you th- I know exactly what you're yeah. talking about. Actually, I remembered this just the other day that we had gone to Kinsfon, I think it was called their first home, the home yeah. they moved out of, the psychedelic home. And was that we had, Isha? Yeah. yeah. I had met George at, a, at the studio, and then he and Kevin Harrington, who worked with Mal Evans, the three of us drove to the old house first, and then we drove to Friar Park. It was late. <laughs> I was probably a little tired at that point. But yeah, the gates, there were these big, magnificent gates, and then this house inside. And I went, that's beautiful. And he said, he laughed. He said, that's the front lodge where my brother lives. <laughs> then we drove on, and the the driveway to Fire Park is this curving, beautiful, long driveway way back in amongst the trees. And there was a second house, and I went, is that it? And he said, no, that's the middle lodge. <laughs> and these were nice places. Sure. And then we made this one turn, and there in front of me was standing... Uh, it was this gothic, amazing home. You couldn't even, I, it's hard to even describe it, but it was, it was like out of a fairy tale. And I just, it was huge and I couldn't believe it. And he said, this is it. <laughs> that thing must have been haunted. Uh, well, we believe it was. Did you see or hear anything weird? Um, Terry Doran did. He came running down to the kitchen one, one night and said, oh my God, he was pale. He said, I just saw a ghost on the the gallery which went around the, the main hall. He was actually spooked. So he's the only one that I know that saw one at that time. Now, was that the period where you were hanging on Clapton and the guys in Derek and the Dominoes? Yeah, that came about that period of time. Actually, I met Eric, really met Eric. I'd met him before in L.A. with Leon, but I met him so that we knew he remembered me, let's put it that way, at the session that George was doing when I went over to meet him at the studio to go to Friar Park. It was that same night. And Eric and I just kind of got along, and we became friends. And he would come over to Friar Park and and say, okay, would you like to come and spend a few days at my house? There was nothing going on between us. I would have wished... But little did I know that there was something going on between Patty and Eric. So I was blind to that. But they were starting to form Derek and the Dominoes at that time. And then once I left Friar Park and went back to London, that I would spend a lot of time out at his house, Eric's house. And eventually he asked me to find them a flat in London that they could live in, which I did. And I moved in with them because <laughs> by that time I'd been fired. Finally, they fired me from Apple. It took a month. <laughs> and they, fi- I knew it. George called and said, look, I've got to tell you something. You're going to get fired. But don't worry. It's the best thing that could happen. Sure. So I was yeah. well prepared for being fired, <laughs> but they just didn't do it. So I just kept going. Instead of going to Apple, I just went to Eric's house. <laughs> the funny thing is I saw an interview with Bobby Whitlock, and he said of all the people he remembers hanging around that period, you were the only one who actually had a real job. Exactly. Isn't that an amazing line? Yes. I When I heard it, I couldn't believe it, that he would see it that way, that I was the only one with a job. <laughs> They were all making more money than me, let me tell you. <laughs> yeah, I mean, not to get off on a tangent, but I've seen you sort of sometimes in print lumped in with, you know, the hangers-on, uh, the groupies, and, and 
obviously your story is not that at all. Well, back in those days, we had a pretty clear idea of what we considered groupies. And they acknowledged they were groupies. I mean, they used the terminology. So it never occurred to me that 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 would have been a, a term that applied to me until I read the first review of my book. And I was called Super Groupie or the grooviest groupie of all time. That's ridiculous. Yeah, and I was like, what? Did they read the book? Yeah, (laughs) I I don't know. I don't know, but I know, I just thought, I can't believe this. I thought that word's still around, and they're still referring to it. It just doesn't apply to you. It's just not what you did. Well, thank you, Bobby Whitlock. Another member of the band, it's a very sad story, Jim Gordon, scary moment that kind of foreshadowed what would happen in his future. Um, Jim and I were kind of pushed together because he had been with Rita Coolidge and I'd been with Leon. And Leon and Rita were together before we came into their lives. So I think it was, we were bonded by that already, that connection. And so we ended up spending time together and I lived with him in the Domino's house for a while. And he was just the nicest, sweetest man, very gentle. And then when they came back from their first tour of the of the U.S. or from the first time in the U.S., they had been introduced to heroin. Uh, not Eric, I don't think, but I think Jim had, because when he came back, he was doing heroin. Yeah. Um, and I think that changed him a lot. And, and one particular night, we were the only ones at the flat, and he was went into a rage. He would just go into a rage. Now I understand it was mental health. Right. But at that time, we didn't know. And he started chasing me around with a kitchen knife. Not funny. No. And I was, it was two-story uh, flat, and I was kind of going up and down the stairs trying to get away from him, and running in the living room around couches. And then suddenly I heard a voice in the kitchen going, Hi, is anyone here? And it was Robert Stigwood. Thank God. So I was like, oh, my God. You know, probably I owe him my... I don't know if he would have, if Jim would have done anything, but I can honestly say I probably owe Robert Stigwood my life. Sure. Oh, and obviously he's a talented man. I don't know if people realize that he was the drummer, Derek, and the Dominoes, but also wrote the piano interlude, the ending bit of Layla. Right, which Rita Coolidge actually says she wrote. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, Let or them they fight wrote it out. together. Let them fight it out. Um, yeah, and, and he played with uh, Delaney and Bonnie before that. I mean, he was a really, really, really good drummer. Yeah. And then he killed his mother. Killed his mother. Yeah, it's very sad. Not the happier things. Um, but at some point, <laughs> you did begin to work for the Rolling Stones. And it's it's funny because as big as they are and as professional as they are now, it was a bit of a step down. Yes, I call it going down the ladder. Uh, that I kind of started at the very top of the ladder and then I kind of took went down. <laughs> but it wasn't a horrible get down, let no. me put it that way. <laughs> yeah, I had met Mick when I was living in London, working at Apple, and went back to L.A. to work for Peter Asher, who was managing James Taylor and recording with him at that time. So I'm, uh, when I got back to L.A., I worked directly for Peter for a while and then was hired by Marshall Chess to work for him 
actually it turned out that it wasn't for him because he was never there. So I was actually working for the Stones. But it was pretty simple because I knew Mick already. It right. made it a lot easier. So I, I worked a year with them, uh, finding them houses. Now, they had come from France, so they'd already started on Exile on Main Street yep. at Nelcott. Keith's house, and they were doing all the other stuff in L.A. So I got them houses, rented them houses, and I was there on a daily basis. I, I mean, Mick's house was where I would go every day. And then eventually the tour was being prepared, and I didn't really have a part in that. I wasn't part of the tour group or, or the organization. I was their personal assistant. Sure. But Mick said, when they left, I'm like, oh, I want to go. And Mick said, don't worry, we'll find a way. And he did. He called me after a few cities and said, I'm having some costumes sent from Ozzy Clark to the airport. Can you? Because back then you had to go to the airport to get things like that yeah. uh, out of, uh, what's it called? You know. You know yep. what I mean. Anyway, so uh, I went to the airport, got the costumes, the box of costumes. Customs, that's what you're thinking of, That's right? That's the word that's I was it, looking yeah. for. I had to go to custom. And um, I took them back and I said, okay, I've got them. And he said, okay, now book a flight and fly to Chicago with them. So then I was on the tour. <laughs> and, you know, still on the tour for the remainder of the tour, I still only really worked for him and Keith and the Stones directly. What's funny is I live about five minutes from the Warwick, Rhode Island airport that you mentioned in the book. Oh, how funny. And around here, that is legendary to this day. It's vivid in my mind. And it started, I think, where were we? we did we fly from Toronto? I can't remember. But we were going to Boston Gardens, or, right? No, yeah, we were going to Boston Gardens, but yeah. we came from Canada. And the first thing that happened is... The plane had mechanical problems, so we had to, we couldn't take off. And so we started playing, we were playing football. The guys were playing ball on the, not the landing strip, but, you know, at the airport on the, the, what do you, oh, Tom what's wrong with me? Thank you. <laughs> this is what happens when you get older. Those little words disappear. Sure. And, and I was the cheerleader and we had such a good time. Little did we know that this was not going to be the end of the experience of that day. So we were to fly into Boston and they told us we couldn't because there were uh, riots happening in the city. Mm. And so we didn't care. Put us anywhere. Yeah. And we were going to get buses and they were going to bring us into back into Boston. But when we got off the plane, I remember vividly they had set up a customs for us and there was a photographer. And he was inside of the customs area, which would be a no-no, right? Oh, yeah. But he was, and he started taking photographs. And that's what started the problem is it's like, you know, we're saying, hey, he shouldn't be here. Get this guy out of here. We're in customs. We're not able to get away. He's a staff photographer for the Providence Journal. Oh, that's probably why he was there. He wasn't well, just like a kid with a photographer. Yeah, I mean, he was. Yeah, well. Still shouldn't do it. it. All it did was get some people arrested. Right. So, you know, and I know that when. Who got arrested first, Mick? No, Keith. Oh, Keith. Well, Keith was getting really upset. Yeah. And he carried a bag with him with all his drugs in it. It was a doctor's bag, literally. And he handed it to me and he said, here, take care of this. And then he went over and got involved in it. And next thing, he's arrested. Mm. So I'm left with his medical bag the whole time. And I went, oh, God. 
<laughs> will I be in that van? But um, then Mick got arrested, and then Peter Rudge thought, I can't let them go to jail <laughs> by themselves. So right. he got arrested, and then Bobby Keys wanted to be part of the gang, so he got arrested. <laughs> <laughs> that was the biggest thing that happened in Warwick, Rhode Island, probably that ever. so amazing. And then the, Stevie Wonder had a play for, what, two hours, three hours? Yeah, the opening act. He was the opening He was act. the opening. What a show. Oh, man. No um, kidding. I think the mayor of Boston had to make a call to get them out. And then they had to like let the buses run late because it would have been a small riot if the stones never appeared. Oh yeah, they created a whole nother problem. Oh yeah, basically that was embarrassing for them. I think Warwick was embarrassed, but certainly <laughs> Boston Mayor was embarrassed. The movie Cocksucker Blues, excuse my language, showed the darker side to life on the road. Even though a lot of it seemed contrived, it seemed like the entourage were more the ones acting up than it was the band. But did you witness a lot of that? Yeah, I did. In fact, um, it was mostly, hap it happened in Keith's suite a lot, is where a lot of the activity was. And I loved Robert Frank and the, and the guy who worked with him, the sound guy. They were, they fit in perfectly with the tour. So they were filming what was going on. But within that filming, he was also getting some of the stuff behind closed doors, like the drug use right. and then the sexual thing that happened, orgy that happened on the plane. And that made it icky. Do you yeah, know what I yeah, mean? That yeah. kind of changed everything about it. But I've seen it, and I was in it, I think, if I recall. And I'm sad that it wasn't a better documentary of the tour. And I know Mick does not want that released in any form. Yeah, it is embarrassing. Yeah, I know. And then when the tour ended, you kind of went through a bit of a dark, harrowing period. Well, it wasn't heroin. I was not no, heroin. I didn't, no, harrowing, not heroin. Oh, harrowing. <laughs> Um, wasn't heroin, it was cocaine. Ah, <laughs> Let's get me, let me get straight. I'm going to straighten that out right now. Um, yeah, come on. We were doing tequila sunrises for breakfast and I just found my limit. I just was beyond. I'd been exposed to all the, I mean, we had pharmaceutical cocaine on the tour and that was the first tour I'd ever really done. And mm. what I discovered in that tour, but I didn't consciously realize it was that it is really hard to come off tour. It's almost like you're like a car that's going at a certain speed and suddenly there's a wall yep. and it stops and it's like, oh, this isn't, you know, I don't, my, my whole life has just changed. I don't know what to do. And I continued with the drugs and the alcohol and eventually had to quit. So it took a while. Yeah, I had definitely had my first recovery from drugs and alcohol was after the Stones tour in 72. And I quit everything. But at that time, there wasn't a lot of support for people who were in recovery. Right. It, didn't, it, just, so, it didn't exist. It you was out there, but nobody wanted to be part of it because AA and, and groups like that, we didn't see ourselves as that. Those were older people. Right. Old drunken guys. Of, you know, <laughs> exactly. Uh, I know. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I think maybe Betty Ford Clinic kind of changed that a little bit. It almost became chic a in a yes. sense, you know? Yeah, exactly. Right, right. But it definitely wasn't in 1972. No, no. It's got to be said that you are, if not the first, one of the first female tour managers, which yeah. is important. Well, I certainly was on the level of which I was working. I, after I went through my kind of drug problem issue time, 
era, whatever you want to call it. My friend, who was a travel agent, owned a travel agency and had done the Stones travel. And she did a lot of rock and roll tours at that time, after the Stones, obviously. And she asked me to come work for her. So I did. And because of that, I would begin to organize all the travel and everything for different tours. And I worked with um, Barry Imhoff, who worked with Bill Graham in San Francisco. I did a Santana tour, I think it was. And after I'd been at the travel agency for about a year, he called me and said, look, we're going to put together a tour with Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young, a reunion tour. This was 1974. Jeez. <laughs> and would you like to work on the tour? You can be one of the tour managers. And uh, hello, of yeah, course. Well. What am I going to say? Oh, I don't know. I really <laughs> like this, working in a travel agent. So I flew to L.A. and I did all the travel and set everything up. So what that did was that gave me a much wider knowledge of what touring was. I could do all the travel. I could sort everything out. So, and having been on tour with the Stones, you know, I had an idea what it was like to be out. But I have to tell you, the first night we were in Vancouver, I think, and we, it was the first night of a show and we got back to the hotel and I thought, I'm going to die. I have never been that tired in my life. And I was like in my early twenties. It was such hard work and my body and my brain weren't used to it because you were on. 24 hours a day, at least in the position I was in. What were some took of the duties that you did as tour manager? Well, I first of all made sure that we, and we traveled by commercial planes on that tour. So I had to make sure that all the flights and all the tickets were together. I had to get all the luggage. I didn't have to personally do it, but I had to make sure they all had their luggage out. And I'd wake them up on days that we traveled and, you know, just make sure everybody got there and we all got on the bus and we all got, or limos, and we all got to the airport. And then once we got to the hotel, I would have to make sure every Everybody, all the luggage got to where it was going and the rooms, everybody got to their rooms and the assignments were right. And then after that, we had a hospitality room that was either connected to Barry Imhoff's suite or my room. I would be in the suite and we were there all day being hospitable. <laughs> so we carried a trunk of things we thought we would need on tour, which included everything from toothpaste and toothbrushes, hair combs, all the way up to Marlboro cigarettes that had all been replaced with marijuana and vitamin capsules that had all been replaced with cocaine. <laughs> Why not? So we were very busy. Sure. We had a lot of company. And the only time I ever had off was during the show. During the concert was right. my time, and I would just sit back in the dressing room a lot. I would find my favorite songs I wanted to hear, and I would go out and watch that. But then I would sit in the dressing room and have a drink and relax and get ready for the next onslaught. Right, right. <laughs> That's kind of what it was like. I mean, you were on all the time. I worked with Barry, and another guy named Gary Schaffner was also with us. So it was the three of us who were in charge of the band. And then uh, Bill Graham dealt with all the crew and the stage, the performance and everything. Interesting story involving Bill Graham. Um, this Would this be with... Um, Apparently Bear something Ma had gone wrong. Yeah, something had gone wrong. Somebody complained, the manager of... Pretty much all of CSNY. He was Elliot. Okay, here we go. I got to think of Elliot's last name. 
He was Geffen. Oh, Elliot Roberts. Okay. It was Geffen and Roberts. So Elliot Roberts was the manager pretty much of the group. He represented them, at least most of them individually. And he called me up one day and just raged at me because of something that was going on. I don't even remember what it was. But nobody had ever yelled at me like that. And I was like, I took it quite personally, to be honest. So I got the I impression called, it was something that you weren't really responsible for. It, it, as I recall, it wasn't anything I was responsible right. for. You know, it was just something that he wasn't happy with about the tour. And so I called Barry. Barry called Bill Graham, and Bill was at the, at the arena. And he called me, and he said, "Ask." He said, "What did he say?" And I told him, and he said to me, "Don't." ever let any of them talk to you like that again. He said, I told Elliot, never speak to my staff like that again, ever. And Bill was pretty strong character. And he said, Chris, you never need to take that from anyone. Right. And, you know, he said, anybody that complains to you, you tell them to come talk to me. To me, that was, I mean, I always thought that he was one of the best employers I ever worked for because he did stand up for his employees. And it makes me also think that the guy who's berating you like that, if you looked like Peter Grant and weren't a woman, I mean, I hate to say that, maybe he felt he could take advantage of that. Well, and the egos were pretty large at that time. Yeah, yeah, I bet. Now, were you tour manager for George when he went on tour in 74? Yeah, I was. Well, after Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young, I flew to England. By now, Patty and George were not together anymore, but I thought, I better go work on George, make sure I get on this George Harrison tour because sure. Bill Graham was doing it. So I figured I'm not, I got to, I can't not do this. Right. So I didn't have enough faith in them to, to rehire me. So I flew and stayed with George for a week or something and he didn't have a problem. He, he could have insisted that I be there. It wasn't a problem. But while I was there, I got a call from Barry Emhoff saying, when are you going to be back? Cause we need to start on this tour. So I flew back and George flew over to LA. And that's when he met Olivia was fairly quickly on because mm. she was at the office. So, you know, that was kind of they all the rehearsals were at A&M Studios. And to me, it was really special because George was so special to me. And so I was really excited about it. And, and yet at the same time, it was really difficult because George wasn't really enjoying it at all. Right. And he wasn't well. He was losing his voice. He wasn't used to that kind of pace. I mean, he had been a lot, well, I guess somewhat younger when he did the, the Beatle tours. It was different. And, um, so I think it was, it was pretty difficult for him. And I didn't feel very connected to him during that time. Yeah. There seemed to, you know, I think he was just hanging in there and holding on to Olivia and himself at that right. point. And John came for a visit with uh, May Payne. Yeah, actually, I went and got them. Barry said, look, John's coming. You go get them. We're going to send a car for him and you go with it because you know them. So, and I had spent a lot of time with John and May in LA when they were recording Harry Nielsen's album at the beach house. I'd stayed out there too. So May and I were friends and I was much closer to John at that point. So I went and got them and then we had a little dinner somewhere and then we drove out to the concert and on Long Island. And yeah, it was wonderful. And then they came back to the hotel afterwards. I think they actually spent the night there. Funny how uh, McCartney didn't go backstage. I mean, that story where he's just out in the audience. 
I tried to get them back, much to my embarrassment. (laughs) Was he in a disguise, him and Linda? He and Linda were in a disguise, Barry Emhoff. And I should have been smarter. I knew the Beatles. I knew how they were. I should have been smarter, smart enough to know not to go out in the audience and do that as I look back on it. But at the time, Barry was my boss. And he said, go and get them and ask them if they want to come backstage. So he gives me the seat numbers. I trek out. I've got a backstage pass on staff, (laughs) a George Harrison touring badge. (laughs) I'm not incognito by any stretch of the imagination. And they're like in the center. So I have to actually go through people and walk to get behind them. I had to go through a whole half a row of people, which was a long way, stood behind them. And I went, oh my God, they're in disguise. And so I just kind of leaned down and I said, hey, guys, um, do you want to come backstage? I've got backstage passes for you. And Paul went, Chris, get out of here. Wow. <laughs> and that, I went, oops. And then sorry. the long walk back. <laughs> the long walk back. <laughs> exactly. But shame on him. You know, I don't know. For like, not coming back. No. In a sense that he was always the one that I think during the breakup that was the most anti beatle if that makes sense. like Paul he, was. Paul was. Yeah. I th- you know, he had something to prove. You know, he, he tried to reinvent himself, hoping a new generation would see him as a new artist with this great new band Wings, you know? Well, I think he was moving on at that time, without a doubt. And, you know, Paul was always the one who was thinking about the business and the marketing. And, I mean, that was his, that was his thinking. Yeah. So he was looking forward to where he was going. And, you know, in all fairness, he did come to the party afterwards. So it wasn't like he just ignored them. There was a big party and and he and Linda showed up for that. And I had to do my mea culpa. (laughs) I don't want to give Bob Dylan shrift in this because, my God, Rolling Thunder, that's one of the biggest endeavors at that time. How did you get involved with Dylan? Well, Bill Graham and Barry Imhoff had split off at that time. They were partners. And Barry started his own production company. And I was on tour with Santana in Europe. And I got a call from Barry, I think, when I was in Paris. And Bill Graham was on tour with us, which was unusually... He didn't like... He didn't come to... It was his first time back in Germany since he was kid and escaped from Germany. Right. I got a call and Barry said, I want you to do this Dylan tour. So come straight to New York from Paris. So I told Bill, I got to go to New York. And Bill said, great, you can fly with me. I'm going back. So Bill Bill booked a ticket for me. And he said, Chris, I'm going to put you in first class with me. And I'm like, oh, thank you. That's nice. And we got to the airport and they said, oh, sorry, Mr. Graham, there are no first class seats available and you're not even in first class. So I had to sit with Bill for the (laughs) whole flight across, sitting in these middle seats in in coach. And all he did was complain until, oh, my God, there's no room. (laughs) Until he finally fell asleep. So um, that (laughs) and we landed in New York and he gave me a ride in his limo, which was nice. Anyway, yeah, so I ran, I landed in New York, and we were starting to plan the tour. But the thing about the tour was that no dates were being announced until a couple days before the show. So no tickets were on sale until a couple days before the show. And no one, not the band, no one knew where we were going. I did. Barry did. Yeah. Um, Bob did. And 
his guy Louis Kemp did, but basically no one really knew. So we put it all together in New York and then we took off. It was an amazing tour. We used buses and campers. And and I was pretty, by that time, I'd just done a month of Europe with Santana and Earth, Wind, and Fire. And I was pretty wiped out. Yeah. So talk about tired. I don't know how I made it through that. But it was an amazing tour, and I loved Bob. And Bob was very open to me when I got there because he had met me through George earlier. So that opened the door, who you knew and who was your referral, in this case, George sure. Harrison then it certainly, you know, it got the trust of, of them. So he and I got along really well. You know, that's the word that keeps coming to my mind is trust. You gain the trust of these people. You didn't run off and sell your story right away. You know, that kind of thing. I think you yeah. were very mindful of that. You mentioned that early on with the Beatles that once you were out of their good graces, you were out. That's right. Yeah. It was easy to be. I used to compare it to sitting around a table, all having dinner. And if somebody got up to go to the bathroom, the restroom or something, when they came back, there'd already be someone else in their seat. Mm. And it was like that. You could get replaced quite easily <laughs> in those situations. Sure. But yeah, in fact, I didn't actually write my book until after George passed. And I knew I wanted to write about it because I was seeing it from a fan's point of view in a lot of ways. And I saw some of the important things that were going on. So I thought, you know, one day I will write about this so people can sort of know what it felt like to be in all of that. It's history. And George, you know, I thought, I'm not going to write it till George is gone. And I had decided I wouldn't write it till I was older. Mm. And I was older when I wrote it. I was in my 60s. And yet there were still people who were not happy that I wrote the book. So, like you know, um, I think, I don't know everybody, but I know that one, that one of my friends who worked for the Stones once said, you know, oh, well, it might be, he, you know, he hadn't been in touch with me. He said, it could be about your book. So I had to just assume from that that the yeah. Stones weren't thrilled, although yeah, I didn't write that much about them. And I don't, <clears throat> I, I think there were a couple other people that just thought it was, um, I don't know. It wasn't okay to, to put your story out, well, which I disagree with. Yeah, exactly. And the funny thing is, there was nothing that surprised me, what you wrote about the Stones. What did surprise me was what an asshole Eric Clapton can be. Oh, my God. I Yeah, a lot of people wrote me after that and said, I thought he was, or I always knew he was. And you know... I have to say today that during the majority of the time that I knew Eric, he was drunk and doing drugs, yeah. and he was awful. And there were times when he wasn't. There were times when he was really sweet and really kind. Mm. But when he used alcohol and drugs, he got like many of us. He became an angry person, and it was jealousy. He told me that. I saw him in Germany afterwards when I was living there in the early 80s, and he actually said to me, it wasn't you, I love you. I just couldn't stand it when you and Patty were together all right, the time. Right, I guess I can see that, you know. Yeah, to a degree. jealousy. And I think her sister, Jenny, had the same experience with him. He just didn't, he wanted her to be his. When was the last time you spoke with George? Um, I think it was, I was married and... Um, I saw him the last time was at Ringo's birthday party in London, and that was 
God, that was in the late 80s. And then I heard from him a few times. Uh, we spoke on the phone and everything. So I think by the 90s, I really didn't have much contact with him anymore. Do you remember where you were when you heard John Lennon was killed? I definitely do. I had come back to Tucson. I'd been in Germany, come back to Tucson to recoup. It's where I would recover. And I got a job at a hotel here in town just to kind of make some extra money. And I was at my boss's house and we were watching the football game and it came on the football. You know, as you recall, it came on and I was, well, I was like everybody else. I was stunned. My first reaction was to call Maureen Starkey, Ringo's ex. So, you know, I said, look, I'm making international calls. They said, okay. So I called Maureen and she was like, she said, oh my God, Cynthia was here. She just left to go to Julian. And I mean, we were all, it it was unbelievable. It's hard to remember how shocking it was, but yeah, it was. (laughs) Do you remember the last time you had talked to him? Had you been in contact with him much? Once he went back to Yoko, not at all. In fact, I don't even think I had any contact with him. So maybe the last actual contact could have been when we went to George's concert. Okay. I don't remember. You know, we were talking about how like somebody reviewed your book and said super groupy, whatever. Mm -hmm. How, How do you sum yourself up? You know, your experience. Wrap it all up in a bow for me. Wrap it up in a bow. Okay, let me, I think I was an American with great organizational skills. I had really good organizational skills and good American work ethics. Went to London, got a job at Apple because of that, and people trusted me. And the trust that people had in me, because they were my friends and vice versa, um, it just kept going on so that others trusted me. And it gave me an opportunity to do things that probably thousands, millions of people would have liked to have experienced. Chris O'Dell, thank you so much for doing this. Thank you so much, Don. I enjoyed this very much. Get off your bottle, go down and see your prayer. We know what to do, Lord, when you tell it how bad it's been. Say you want to get away to the English countryside. Cause pride won't help you now, boy. Why don't you look out in it till you cry? I got down to Chelsea I had no expectation Oh, to get away From the girl, the girl And the painful situation But I hardly had a time Oh, to laugh and look around And I found my heart Was going again Like an English leaps and bounds And she's a
70 debut LP. That's Leon Russell with Pisces Apple Lady, his gift of song to his then-girlfriend Chris O'Dell, who I want to thank for being on this week's It's Only Rock and Roll podcast. Her book, Miss Odell, Hot Days and Long Nights with the Beatles, the Stones, Bob Dylan, and Eric Clapton, is available at Amazon.com. Just check our show notes for the details on how you can get your copy. As always, you're invited to check us out at www.itsonlyrockandrollpodcast.com or on Facebook, Instagram, or YouTube at It's Only Rock and Roll Podcast. Typed out as all one word, no abbreviations, spaces, all those German things, umlauts, none of that. And no commas. Please. We'll be back soon with another episode of the It's Only Rock and Roll podcast. Until then, do whatever the you want to do. It's really none of my business.